If you have your Bible with you, please, the book of Hebrews, chapter number two. The book of Hebrews, chapter number two. Hebrews chapter two. I had another whole series of messages planned about three o'clock yesterday afternoon. I just had a sense that's not it. And so I changed my mind. And, uh, you know, uh, they say women have a right to change their mind. Well, so do preachers. So I changed my mind. And I want to talk to you today on the subject, the logic of salvation. The logic of salvation. In the book of Hebrews, as you stand with me, please, and we begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we ought, there's an ought, something we need to look at and think about and then do. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we let them slip. Now, just stop and think about those words. Giving an earnest heed to the things that we have learned, the things that I've been preaching to you for 50 years. Don't let some things slip. Don't move away from some very, very foundational and basic things. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression that would be sin... Every sin and disobedience receiveth a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Here's the thing we must not let slip. The great plan and gift of salvation that God has given to us. That's what the essence of those verses mean. Now, I'm going to turn to another passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 where the Apostle Peter says essentially the same thing. So by emphasis, we're getting uh, a truth here that obviously we want to retain. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 1, this second epistle or letter, beloved, I now write to you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Peter says, I'm writing you this letter so I can stir you up. I'm preaching this message to stir you up. And then here's what he wants to stir them up about, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. I'm going to paraphrase it, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by your pastor and other people that you have heard preach and teach and of the commandments that the apostles of the Lord, our Lord and Savior gave to us. Thank you, and you may be seated today. The logic of salvation. And it says, to give earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest they slip away from us. And as we approach our 50th anniversary today, I want to remind you of some of those very things. I think it's a wonderful, wonderfully appropriate time to say to our church family, our congregation, look, 50 years ago, we began a church together. And through the years, we, God has kept us together. And we've seen many wonderful things for which we're thankful. Now, we don't want to let those things slip. 
you, you know, the nature of things are that they change, that things gradually morph. They, 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 they move away from their original uh, state, and they just kind of gradually change and morph into something else. And I don't want to see the Florence Baptist Temple let some things slip that will cause us to morph into something different than what we are and what we have been. My premise today on the logic of salvation is this, that God is just. If you look there in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 2, it says, every transgression or sin and uh, every transgression and disobedience receiveth a just recompense or payment of reward. Every sin will receive a just payment, a just punishment, because the, the payment for sin is punishment, of course. And so I am declaring to you on the authority of God's Word, God is a just God. When I say He is just, I mean He is fair. I mean that God is impartial. He doesn't treat one person one way and another person another way. When I say that He is just, I mean that God will never punish one sin more than it ought to be punished. But because He is just, He will never punish sin less than it ought to be punished either. God is fair. He is impartial. It's interesting that the same word translated just in the New Testament is also translated righteous in many other ways, in many other places. So you could say God is righteous, or you could say God is just. They are synonymous. They mean exactly the same thing. And you could also say along with that that God is holy. So when you think of God, what do you think of? You think of a God of love. I'm certain we all do. But do you also think God is not only a God of love and kindness and mercy and grace, but God is a God of justice. God is a God who will always be righteous, meaning right. God is a, a God who will always be a holy God. He is different than anything else in the entire universe he is pure to a degree that we cannot even understand. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And he made us in his image, the Bible says in the second chapter, or the first chapter, rather, of the Bible. He made us in his image, meaning we bear the characteristics of God. And deep down in our DNA as human beings, we also believe in justice. Our DNA, I believe, longs for justice. And so we're outraged when we see injustice, and we see a lot of it in our land. Watch the national news, and among other things, you're going to see almost on a regular basis that there's two standards of justice. And if you're wealthy, and if you're elite, and if you know the right people, you're going to receive a different kind of justice than the kind of justice that the poor man the person who can't afford all those expensive lawyers is going to receive. And one day, John Jeppertinger over here, a lawyer in our membership, he said to me, don't go to the courthouse looking for justice. Go to the courthouse looking for the practice of law. And I thought, 
that, that really is pretty well where we are in our, in our nation today. And so we're outraged when we see crimes for which there's no punishment. Even in sports, as I go watch the football game and I see an infraction of the rules and somebody's offside or somebody clips, and I want to see the referee throw the flag. I want to see him blow the whistle. I want to see him enforce the rules of the game because there's something in my DNA because I was made in the image of God as were you. And there's something in my DNA that cries out, no, that's unfair. Somebody is getting different treatment than other people. And I come back to what, or to the very character of God himself. God is just. God is impartial. God is always fair. Now, I spoke Thursday to the elementary kids. I go over there and speak to them and in their chapel, and the chapel was, I mean, packed with children from about the 4 or 5K up until the 6th grade, and I, I enjoyed speaking to them this week. And I thought, what shall I say to these kids? And I believe the Lord was leading me when I spoke to them about what do you absolutely have to understand to be saved? And I gave them four or five points, but I told them a story it's a little simple story. It's a morality tale, if you will. It's a very little simple story, very familiar. Some of you have heard it, but I don't hesitate to repeat it because I don't want things to slip. And so I'm going to repeat it to you today. It's a story that comes from up in the mountains, up in the hills. It happened over 100 years ago up in Tennessee or Kentucky or Virginia, West Virginia, somewhere up there in the mountains. There was a little mountain school. They only had 20 students. And the students were known for their bad behavior. Nobody could control those students. They were wild and undisciplined children. And they came to the school, and every year they would harass the teachers, and the teacher would end up resigning. They'd get a new teacher every year because nobody could discipline and handle these children. And so a new teacher came. And the new teacher was fresh out of college. That's the only people they could hire, somebody that didn't know what they were getting into that was so totally green. The new teacher came, a young man. He stood before the class that day, all eight grades in one, in one room. And he said, okay, children, now if we're going to operate and we're going to learn this year, there has to be discipline, so we have to have some rules. But I'm going to let you make up your own rules. And so the kids began to say, the rules. And one little girl stood up and said, no stealing. And he wrote it on the board, no stealing. And then someone else spoke up and they said, uh, no cussing. And he wrote on the board, no cussing. And then somebody else said, no fighting. And he wrote it on the board. Now they have their rules. And he goes back and he says, well, now a rule is worthless. A law is meaningless unless it has a punishment. And so they decided on how many licks you get with the paddle if you cussed or if you stole or if you fought or if you infringed the rules. And he laid it all out and explained it to him. He said, we're going to start right here, and then we're going to have a good year together. Well, things went along very well. He figured out that the leader of those kids and the leader of the uh, mischievousness was a young man called, they called him Big Jack. Big Jack. He was an eighth grader. He was a big, strong young man, 
And he was really not so bad, just a mischievous kid, but sort of out of control, though. And Big Jack was the eighth grade leader. When the teacher would say something, the kids would all look at Big Jack to see what his response was. But he was also a troublemaker. And the teacher tried to work with Big Jack. And then one day, Big Jack came to him. It was lunchtime. And Big Jack said, teacher, somebody has stolen my lunch. And in those days, the kids carried lunch pails, and he opened the top, and it's empty. Somebody has stolen my lunch. And after quizzing the kids, the teacher said, well, I know who it is. A little girl told me she saw little Tim. Little Tim stole the lunch. It's an old story. Happened over 100 years ago. It's supposed to be a true story. Little Tim stole Big Jack's lunch and ate it. Little Tim was only like a second or third grader. Little Tim was from a family that was so poor that many times he didn't even have a lunch. And so the teacher called him, little Tim, Timothy, did you steal Big Jack's lunch? He said, yes, I did. And so when the class was convened again after lunch, the teacher said, Timothy, would you like to speak to the students, the children? And little Tim said, I'm the one who stole the lunch that everybody's been talking about. All right, Tim, bend over the desk and uh, receive your punishment. He had on a big coat, a heavy, heavy wool coat, like a pea coat. And the teacher said, you have to take the coat off. And the little boy started crying, I can't take it off. No, teacher, please, no, let me leave my coat on. And the teacher said, no, Tim, take your coat off. He began to unbutton it. He didn't even have a shirt on. His little body was naked from the waist up under the coat. And he's crying and sobbing. The teacher said, little Tim, why don't you have a shirt on? Because I only have one shirt. And it was so dirty. Mama said, I'll wash it today. You wear that coat all day long and don't take it off. Boy, the teacher was moved. Well, Tim, you have to take it off. And Tim bent over to receive his punishment. And the teacher raised his paddle. And Big Jack says, teacher, before you give him that spanking, let me talk to you. And Big Jack stood and walked to the front of the room. Teacher, could I take his whipping? The teacher said, well, I don't guess there's anything that says you can't take his whipping. Well, I'll take his whipping. Timmy, put back on your coat. And the teacher took the paddle. And one lick, and two licks, and three licks. And the teacher broke down. Tears were running down his face. He tossed the paddle to the side, and he said, that's punishment enough, Jack. That's punishment enough. You took his whipping. The penalty for stealing has been paid. Boy, that story puts a lump in my throat, and I've told it a lot. Because you know what? It cuts to the essence of the Christian faith, ladies and gentlemen. Because number one with me today, 
God is the moral judge of the universe. And God, like that teacher, absolutely must and will punish every sin. If God doesn't punish sin, there's no reason to have, there's no moral order in the entire universe, we would say. And look in your Bible again. Read it with me. It's Hebrews 2 and 2. It's one of the most important verses in the book of Hebrews. It says, Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, a just punishment. Now, you have to understand what sin is, if that's going to be very meaningful. Sin is any act, even including a thought, any act or thought that's contrary to God's holy nature. Sin, in essence, is a breaking of God's rules. Sin is a crime, if you want to put it in those terms, against Almighty God. And we have so minimized the seriousness of sin in our culture. In fact, many people, perhaps half the people in modern-day America today no longer believe that there's such a thing as sin. We make it a disease and call it a health problem. We say it's a psychological state of mind or something like that. And the Bible says, no, it is an offense in the nostrils of a holy God. It is a sin against God himself. And the penalty for sin in the Bible is always death, separation from God for all of eternity if sin is not paid for, and without exception, no matter who we are. In Romans 3 and 23, it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's you. That's me. That's every one of us. It says then there's a penalty for that sin, Romans 6 and 23. It says the wages of sin is death. The word death always in the New Testament has the idea of separation from God, that the sins that we have committed stand between us and that just and that holy God. And in Ezekiel, it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And what is our response to sin? Well, for the most part in America today, we don't even talk about it. We tend to excuse it. Flip Wilson said back in the 70s and 80s, the devil made me do it. He blamed it on somebody else. And we still blame shift, and we justify, and we rationalize, and we minimize, and we play down the importance of sin, not thinking about the fact that the Bible says, ladies and gentlemen, that sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. I know that this is not popular preaching. I know that uh, you don't hear this kind of preaching. Very, I'll get 10 emails from the, from the um, television audience and the live stream probably today who will tell me, we don't hear that kind of preaching anymore. And that's because we are so corrupted today that we have dismissed the whole idea of sin from a biblical standpoint, ladies and gentlemen. One of the teachers said to me the other day, she said, you know what? Preacher, I'm so glad you preached what you did in chapel because our children, little children, when we talk to them about doing wrong, they excuse it. They minimize it. It is as if little children don't want to accept personal responsibility for the sin that so easily besets them. And so I remind you, God is the moral judge, the righteous, holy judge of the universe, and he must and he will punish 
every transgression and disobedience with a just recompense of reward. But number two, I would remind you that God cannot just excuse or dismiss sin. If he does dismiss sin, he is no longer holy himself. Just like in my little simple story of Big Jack and little Tim and the teacher, the teacher made the rules. He couldn't just dismiss them because he felt pity for little Tim. He had to enforce the penalty or he would have lost the class. He would have had no moral standard for that class had he dismissed the stealing of the lunch. And I want you to go with me in your mind to the justice center downtown to the courtroom. And a man stands there before the judge and his head is bowed and he has just admitted his guilt. He understands that he has done something very wrong. He's broken the law. And before the judge can sentence him, he falls down on his knees and he's sobbing and crying and weeping and he says to the judge, oh, your honor, please, please, will you forgive me? I know I've done wrong, your honor, but think of what it's going to do to my wife and to my children if you send me to jail. Please, your honor, can my sin be forgiven? Can my crime be forgiven me? And finally, the judge stops the man in the middle of his emotion, and the judge says to him, Sir, when I became a judge, I put my hand on the Bible, and I held up my other hand, and I swore that I would uphold the Constitution and the laws of this state. Sir, if I were to just dismiss your sin, I would perjure myself. I would be the one who would be wrong. I would have to take the guilt of your wrongdoing. And the response of many people today, I'm afraid, is that when they realize that they are sinners, they try to beg and ask the judge to let them off. And here's how we do it. We say, God, I confess my sins. I have sinned. And I want you to forgive me. And what they mean is I want you to let me off. My old mentor, Dr. Lakin, who preached the gospel all over America for so long, he told me one day when I was a, the church was three or five years old, and he was coming and preaching here for me. Bill, not many preachers really preach the full gospel. I want you to learn the gospel, learn how to preach the gospel. I said, what do you mean many preachers don't understand the gospel? He said, they understand it superficially. They can quote 1 Corinthians 15 and say, Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. But to understand the basis of our forgiveness and why God has to judge sin and how he deals with sin at the cross and the atonement, he said, you don't hear preached, Bill. And I said in my heart then, I'm going to learn to preach the gospel I want the people of my church to be so well-versed in the gospel. It's not a little superficial thing. Well, you know, just believe in Jesus and confess your sins and you're okay. Man, South Carolina's eat up with that stuff. It's eat up with that stuff. No, I can't beg God to be let off 
from my sins as a sinner. In fact, I'll make a very strong statement. The Bible never one time teaches that sinners are forgiven as a result of confessing their sin and begging God for forgiveness. Did you hear that statement? The Bible never one time teaches that sinners are forgiven as a result of confessing their sin and begging God for forgiveness. Do you believe that, but you don't think about it? Here's the question. If God would forgive sin because a sinner begs him to dismiss his sin, then why did Christ die? Everything Jesus did was meaningless and worthless. If you can just pray and ask God to forgive you and you're saved, there's got to be some basis for forgiveness. There's got to be some justice. The penalty has to be paid for my sin and yours. Jesus, in his famous conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, didn't say, Nicodemus, you need to beg and pray and, and plead and cry and weep and confess your sins and God will forgive you. Never, not a word of that. John 3, 14 through 16, what did he say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He talked about believing the gospel, not about begging God. Paul in that Philippian jail, and that jailer comes up and says, Paul, what must I do to be saved? Nothing about praying and begging and confessing and pleading and weeping and crying and all that. What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The whole thing was turned, you see. John wrote his gospel, he said, so that people would know how to have eternal life. And in John 20 and 21 21, he says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that after you believe, you can have life in his name. No word about begging and pleading and crying and carrying on before God and confessing your sins every night, hoping that you won't commit any more before you go into God's presence. None of that, no. Well, somebody's going to object. I can hear the objection right now in your mind. And you're saying something like this, well, what about the Lord's Prayer? Doesn't it talk about forgive us our sins and as we are in trespasses as we forgive others? Yes, it does. But who is the Lord's prayer for? It's not for sinners. The Lord's prayer is our Father who art in heaven. That's God's children dealing with their sins. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. But who is First John written to? It's not the plan of salvation. It's written to my little children to save people. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but hear me. Saved people deal with their sins differently than unsaved people do. And we'll talk about that maybe in a later message. But there's not a verse in the Bible, I say it again, that tells a sinner to come to God and beg and plead and pray and confess his sins and he'll be forgiven on the basis of a prayer. Oh, I am so afraid as I come to this part, point in my message that I've preached to people and that they've misunderstood 
And, and, and as clearly as I've tried to preach the gospel, that they, they think, well, I pray, I pray to prayer. So often I come to people and I say to them, do you know you're saved? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I prayed that prayer. You prayed to prayer. You think praying a prayer saves anybody? Now I'll lay me down to sleep. You might as well pray that. No, sir, you, there is no forgiveness without an atonement. And to not understand that is to miss the essence of the Christian faith, my friend. Hear me. The only basis for forgiveness of sin is a blood atonement. Boy, I know that's unpopular, but that is what the Bible teaches, is it not? The word atonement means a covering. The only basis of forgiveness of sin is to be covered in the blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus is talking about. Hebrews 9 and 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. May I say it again? Without the shedding of blood is no remission of sin. Leviticus 17 and 11 says that it's the blood that makes an atonement for our sin. It's the blood that covers my sin and receives the forgiveness of God for my wrongdoings. Once a year, you remember those Jewish people took that little lamb, Passover time, and they offered that little lamb. And that little lamb's blood was the atonement, the covering that covered their sins. And they were to do that every year, salvation a year at a time, until the Lord Jesus Christ came, the Lamb of God, who would finally once and for all pay for the sins of all humanity. And so you see, if that be true, then it only left God one narrow choice, one narrow door that he would walk through to provide us salvation. One narrow path that God had, one narrow option. God literally, logically had to thread a needle to provide us salvation. You see, if he only acted in justice and he didn't show any grace and mercy, well then, every one of us would have had to pay for our sins in hell for eternity. And if God had only acted in mercy and, and grace and love and kindness, there would have been no moral law in the universe. We, in trying to keep us from hell, he would, have, he would have created a hell on earth. Think of what it would be on this earth if there were no law. What it would be like if there was no standard of right and wrong and holiness and unholiness. No, God didn't have any choice. There was only one narrow opening where he could provide salvation, and that was if a qualified substitute could be found. I said a qualified substitute. Did you hear me? The substitute must be sinless. If the substitute had one sin, he would have been disqualified from dying for my sin. The substitute must be a volunteer. God didn't take Jesus and require him and constrain him and make him go to the cross. He went to the cross because he loved us. He went voluntarily and willingly. 
And the substitute, whoever it would be that would pay for all of our sins, must have adequate righteousness. He must be so righteous, this substitute, whoever it might be, he must be so righteous that his righteousness was greater than all the sin of the whole world. Think of that. And only one person qualified in the universe, and that was the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. His righteousness was greater than all of our sin. He was sinless. Never one time did he ever do a wrong deed. And he volunteered because he loved us. We often quote that verse, John 14 and 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to me. Hear me. Jesus said, I am the way. And we usually compare that with what Jesus meant. It's not the Islam or it's not Hinduism or something like that. That's not all that he meant. He meant that there was no other way for people to be redeemed and become the children of God and have their sins forgiven. There was no other way except if he took the penalty and died in our place. In a war sometimes, this happened during the Korean War, in fact, one side will take prisoners from the other, and then the other side will take prisoners from them. And oftentimes those prisoners are exchanged. A prisoner exchange is arranged between the heads of state. And it's been a common thing through the years for a nation to trade a, a, a high-ranking officer for several or maybe even many foot soldiers. For example, a colonel might be traded for a hundred uh, infantrymen. And in the case of Christianity and salvation today, in the logic of salvation, Jesus Christ was traded for, the sin, for all of mankind. His righteousness outweighed the sin of all humanity. That's why I go to your Bible again in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 3. How does it begin? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And so to not neglect it, we go back to verse 1. We must not let these things slip. I've preached this before. Not exactly like this, but similarly. But I'm going to tell you today, I offer not one, not one letter of apology because this is the heart of our faith, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. And without it, there is no forgiveness of sin. God viewed the life of Jesus Christ greater than the life of all of humanity. And when Jesus died for our sins, God was willing to accept him as the substitute. He was the only qualified substitute. And here's what he did. Listen to these verses quickly. I go very rapidly. 1 John 2, 2. He died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 Peter 2 and 24. He bore our sins. That's everyone 
in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 3 and 18, Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and raised again by the Spirit. And I love this one, Romans 3 and 23, that he might be just. There's God's justice. By punishing Christ in our place, God could still be just. The sin had been punished, but he could justify us and forgive us of our sins. No, I'm not forgiven because I beg God to forgive me of my sins every night. I am forgiven because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came to the earth and climbed up on a pole and died for my sins, and I'm depending on that 100%. That's the gospel if I never tell it again. Look with me, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 2. You're right there. You have your Bible open. Go to verse 9, and it says, By the grace of God that Jesus should taste death for." Every man. And I wrote there beside every man, Jesus Christ could taste death for Bill Monroe. And there might be another Bill Monroe. I know there was at least one. He was on the Grand Ole Opry. Because I want it to be, I want to never slip that he died for me. How many sins did Jesus Christ die for? He died for all of them, didn't he? Titus 2 and 14, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Now listen to me. Look up here. Don't miss this part, this last thing. If Jesus Christ really, truly died on the cross for all our sins, then God must forgive me of my sin when I come to him in faith because Jesus has already paid for him. There's no double jeopardy. If Jesus Christ really went to the cross, he truly, literally died for my sin and yours, then can God punish me for my sin? If I receive Christ as my Savior, as the Bible is instructed, and the answer is a clear and loud no. God could not be just if he punished my sins in Christ and I received Christ and he punished me again. The justice of God that demands the punishment of sin is also the justice of God that must forgive me of my sin when the penalty has been paid for it. The logic of salvation. Will you bow your head with me in prayer?